John chapter 11, uh, verse 45, I will remind you that in prior verses in this chapter, this Jesus uh, claimed to be the resurrection and the life, and he really proved it uh, by giving new life to a man who was dead. That's Lazarus. It was quite remarkable. He had two sisters, as you remember, Mary and Martha, who became eyewitnesses to perhaps the greatest miracle the Lord performed, uh, the resurrection of a man who had been entombed for four days. And they weren't the only witnesses, eyewitnesses, firsthand witnesses to this miracle. There were many Jewish people unsaved who came from Jerusalem to the locale of this miracle, Bethany. They came to offer condolences to the family with regard to the death of their brother, but their brother suddenly was no longer held in the grip of death. He was not in that state beyond four days because this Jesus, who claimed to be the resurrection and the life, uttered a command in a very loud voice. He said, Lazarus, come forth. And he did. And that was a, an unbelievable resurrection. And uh, you would think it would lead to all kinds of responses of a good kind, but it didn't entirely. And you will see it tonight in John chapter 11, verse 45, which begins with the word, therefore. Therefore, in light of the background I just gave you, therefore, it says, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done, believed in him. That is a good thing. That's wonderful. That's the right response. Many of the Jews, hitherto unsaved, when they saw with their own eyes what Jesus, who claimed to be the resurrection and the life, could do, when they saw this, they rendered the right response. They believed. It's good news. It's encouraging. Many believed. But here's the puzzle to me. Why only many? Why not all who witnessed this? That's the question I asked you to wrestle with just for a little bit. Folks, if any miracle recorded in the Bible or ever having been performed by so-called miracle workers, if any miracle should have resulted in people responding by faith in the miracle worker, Jesus, it would be this one. Not even in light of the state of the advanced modern medical knowledge we have today, could any doctor pull this off? This man was in a state of decay and deterioration, a rather advanced state. I mean, the corpse smelled even. Those were the words of his sister. And yet the Lord uh, simply with three words, Lazarus, come forth, pronounced upon him life from death. And so it's wonderful that many who were hitherto unsaved were moved from darkness to light, seeing this firsthand, but I'm perplexed. Why not everybody? That's what you discussed just a little bit. I guess the answer is uh, seeing is not necessarily believing. You know about that? little epithet, seeing is believing. Well, it's not in the Bible. It's just something we pronounce upon one another from time to time. Apparently, that's not exactly true. Even if you are a firsthand witness, you see with your own eyes something like this. This man, Lazarus, entombed, comes out still in his burial clothes. I don't even know how all that happened, but it did. And he is alive from death. They saw, but they didn't believe. And so 
I guess I'm finding out that even if you see miracles firsthand, it doesn't automatically guarantee you'll be converted and you'll become one who falls at the feet of the miracle worker, the Lord Jesus. And I, I wondered why, what is the case here? Well, I guess for those who insist on remaining independent of God, not even a miracle like this one is gonna change anything for them. Not even a miracle like this is going to automatically uh, produce faith to believe in their lives. And so the text goes on in verse 46, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. So I want to tell you that phrase, some of them can be taken in two ways. Uh, I'll tell you what I mean. You tell me which way you think makes most sense. The phrase, some of them, could clearly be a reference to uh, the fact that though many believed, not all, many believed, but uh, some of the Jewish people there present did not believe. And so they are the ones who went to the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Israel, and essentially ratted out the Lord. Many believed, but some of them who were gathered there did not believe and they thought they had a good basis for commanding the attention of the Pharisees, and they squealed, and they brought to the attention of the Pharisees, hey, this radical, unauthorized Jesus is doing some stuff. You all ought to know about it. So that's one approach to this phrase, some of them. But here's another one. Maybe the phrase, some of them, is a reference to some of those who believed. Many believed, and some of them some of those who believed made their way to the Pharisees uh, not to squeal or to rat out the Lord Jesus, but to witness on his behalf. Some of them went not as snitches, but as evangelists. They're new believers, and they're excited, and they got this notion, good night, we've got to tell our religious leaders about this. So I don't know which it is. I don't know which is the correct understanding. I know, let's have some fun, let's vote. How many people here think it's option number one? The sum of them is a reference to the fact that though many of these Jews believed, some of them didn't, and the unbelievers went to squeal to their religious leaders. How many think that's the best way? Go ahead, raise your hand, okay, thank you very much for being bold and brave. How many think it's the second option? No, 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 there are many people gathered there, many believed, and some of them who believed went, not to snitch, but to do evangelism. How many think it's that one? There you go. Once again, we Christians, we don't agree about anything. No, we do, we really do. This is one of the matters of the faith that we're not gonna split over, are we? No, we gotta keep the main thing the main thing. I think it's very, very interesting that the scriptures are so stimulating and uh, intriguing and can captivate the mind even of the most intellectually uh, acute of us. This is, this, these are the scriptures, really wonderful. Well, we don't know for sure. We'll have to wait until we see the Lord face to face and we'll ask him. But though we're not sure which of those options is actually the case, I can tell you this. Uh, this is certain. The Pharisees heard from uh, those witnesses who were eyewitnesses firsthand witnesses of this miracle, they heard, this much we know, what the Lord Jesus had done. These uh, folks, 
these witnesses, whether their motive was good or bad, we don't know. They told the Pharisees what they had personally. It's not like they said, hey, we heard from others. They said, we saw. I mean, some of them actually were there removing the stone. Some of them actually, you remember, were instrumental in removing firsthand Lazarus's burial clothes. So they didn't refer to somebody else. They said, we were there. We saw this. So one thing is certain, the Pharisees were told firsthand what happened. And I'm thinking, in light of this uh, rather strong testimony, this, this evidence-based testimony, I'm kind of thinking that we could expect the very next verse in this story to read like this. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees believed. Yeah, but it doesn't say that. It says this, verse 47. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing? For this man, Jesus, for this man is performing many signs. So let me tell you first what this council is. It was called the Sanhedrin. Have you heard of that? That was the ruling religious governmental body in ancient Israel. It consisted of 70 well-chosen men, big shots in Israel, 70 of them. Then there was a high priest, and the high priest made 71, and his vote would break all potential ties in the Sanhedrin. It was made up of, as we read, chief priests and Pharisees. The chief priests were mostly from a political religious party known as the Sadducees. And the Sadducees would be the uh, liberal political religious entity in the day. They didn't believe in hardly anything supernatural, uh, in particular, resurrection. But that's, that's what distinguished the Sadducees from the Pharisees. So if the Sadducees were the liberal political party in the day, the Pharisees, also members of the Sanhedrin, were the opposite. They were conservative. They believed in resurrection. They believed in miracle. They believed in the supernatural. Now, I want to tell you, the Pharisees and the Sadducees had almost nothing in common. Kind of like Democrats and Republicans today. I mean, they had ferocious fights in the Sanhedrin. They had fierce, sometimes violent disagreements with one another, just like today. But the one thing both warring political parties agreed on was we got to do something about this radical rabbi Jesus. He is the one who brought these two warring groups together. And so uh, these leaders, uh, they didn't deny the evidence. <laughs> they did something worse, in my opinion. They did something even more puzzling than denying the evidence. They disregarded the evidence. I don't know how you pull that off. These are smart people. Uh, they're not operating at an intellectual deficit. Their minds are pretty sharp. Uh, they're confronted with firsthand evidence. They just disregard the whole weight of evidence. And so we see once again that faith is not so much a matter of proof uh, or submission of evidence that uh, appeals to the mind. No, faith is a matter of the will and of the heart. And so these leaders were clearly aware of the remarkable deeds of the Lord Jesus, and yet they refused 
to submit their wills to his. And so it wasn't a matter of the mind, it was a matter of the heart that kept them from faith. And so unbelief, it seems to me, is due not to lack of information, it's due to a hardened heart. And so here is where their hardened hearts took them. Verse 48, if we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. And we would say, yeah, that's pretty good. That's nothing to worry about. Why are these guys worried about that possibility? Well, here's why says so, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. You see, the Romans uh, controlled the Holy Land in that day. It was under the control of Roman authority. Now, they allowed the Jews to freely practice their religion. They allowed the Sanhedrin to govern with regard to religious matters concerning their own people. However, if there was any hint of the Sanhedrin allowing their people to show greater loyalty to one other than Caesar, the emperor, look out, the heat would be on. Now the members of the uh, Sanhedrin are concerned about this. If we let this go on, many might believe in him. And then the Roman soldiers and authorities will see, oh my goodness, we're allowing our people to show greater loyalty to this Jesus than to the emperor of Rome sitting comfortably back there on his throne in Rome. And if that happens, the Roman authorities will charge on in here and will take away, they say, both our place and our nation. I think uh, the reference, they'll take away our place is to the temple. I think there, you agree with that? There's two of us. Uh, it's a reference to the temple, which is a terrible thing. It shows the arrogance of these people. Uh, the temple is not theirs to be owned. Our place? What are you talking about? The temple was a magnificent building ordained by God, and it was supposed to be the place where people come to worship God. And instead, uh, the Jewish religious leaders made it the basis of their um, fame and uh, finance, probably, and their power and popularity. Now, don't be too hard on my people. It happens today, too, where people in the ministry lose sight of the fact that they're under shepherds of Almighty God. The buildings in which we worship are not for the glory of the men who serve there. They're supposed to be for the glory uh, of the God who, who is the head of the church. Anyway, they lay, they lay claim to this, and they're nervous They're nervous about, now listen to this, a little bit of irony. The very thing the Sanhedrin members are afraid of actually came to pass 40 years after this event. In AD 70, the 10th Roman legion under the command of Roman general Titus, who later became emperor Titus, well, they besieged Jerusalem. They they killed hundreds of thousands. People say about a million people perished. They burned the temple uh, to the ground, and they expelled and dispersed the Jewish people from the land. And so what the Sanhedrin feared would happen actually did happen, but it didn't happen because of Jesus. It happened because of their rejection of Jesus. You see? You see what's going on here? So now verse 49. But one of them, Sanhedrin members, Here's his name, Caiaphas. Who was he? Well, he was high priest when 
that year. He said to them, you know nothing at all. So that's encouraging. Now listen, according to the law of Moses, the person who serves as high priest in the Sanhedrin it has, it has an office for life. But that wasn't the case now. See, the Romans feared if we let a Jewish high priest think he's going to serve for life, the power may get out of control. He may have too much authority. And one thing Rome wouldn't take is competition, you see, again, any challenge to the authority of the emperor. So the Romans came up with a plan totally contrary to the Hebrew scriptures. The Romans said, well, I'll tell you what. We'll make a recommendation as to who your high priest should be, mean, meaning no one could serve that way unless the Romans approved of it. And we will make it a time-limited office. That's why it says Caiaphas was the guy who was the high priest this year. And so that's kind of what, what is sort of happening. Now, Caiaphas was the son-in-law of a guy named Annas, He's mentioned in the Bible, and he was the previous high priest. And all historical records, Josephus and all the rest, tell us something about Caiaphas. You wouldn't want your daughter to marry someone like him. He was brutal. He was devious. He was egotistical. He was quite cunning. There's almost nothing good said about this guy. Well, he's the guy who steps up, and he insults the rest of the Sanhedrin by declaring, you know nothing at all, verse 50, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. His point is it's better for one man, in this case, Jesus, to die than for the whole nation to perhaps follow after him and then, because of the attention it's causing, then be destroyed by Rome for rebelling against the emperor. So Caiaphas presented a solution to the Jesus problem. The solution is he should simply be murdered because that is better. It's better for one to die so that many will live. Do you realize that Caiaphas didn't realize the truth of what he just said? <laughs> he, in essence, said, let one die in place of the rest of us. Let one die in our place instead of us. Let one be our substitute. Caiaphas did not realize the depth of what he just said, because what he just said really presents the bedrock, if you think about it, of the Christian faith. It's the idea of substitution. One died as our substitute that we may live. Good night, Caiaphas, unsaved, hardened guy. Had no idea what he's saying. He said this. But even though he said it, he doesn't understand the significance of what he said. And we are told more about what he said in the next verse, 51. Now, he did not say this on his own initiative. Caiaphas didn't say this on his own initiative. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. Folks, don't read that too quickly. We are dealing with something Really remarkable here. Caiaphas, a hardened sinner, a brutal, egotistical, probably 
narcissist, a denier of the obvious evidence pertaining to Christ Jesus is, by God's sovereignty, actually prophesying about the substitutionary death of Christ. He, Caiaphas, of all people, it says this, prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. Furthermore, verse 52, and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Do you see what's happening? Caiaphas, a power-hungry, egomaniacal, corrupt and brutal creep, <laughs> is giving a very clear statement on the substitutionary atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Do you see this? This ought to help you and me relax today. I'll tell you why. Do you see that no matter who happens to be the governmental leader at the time, God can accomplish his purposes one way or the other through any and all of them? I mean, that really helps me. Because we got some unusual people trying to run the world. It could kind of eat your lunch, cause you to be a little depressed and not sleep at night. Well, forget it. Good night. If God can use as a vessel a creep like Caiaphas to get the job done, holy moly, he can use any of these people. So you and I ought to relax and stop being so nervous about everything, it seems to me. Caiaphas thinks all along he's in control. Every egomaniacal governmental leader thinks so. Caiaphas is no different. He thinks he's in control, but he's not. He's under the control of the one who is fully in control. God is in control. God is sovereign. And Caiaphas has no idea what, is really, what he is really saying but he is saying exactly what God intends for him to say. Jesus was going to die for others. Now, let me tell you something that, uh, well, you may take it the wrong way. Tell me what you think. I think both Caiaphas and God, the Father, wanted Jesus to die. I know that's a little weird. Don't throw anything at me just yet. But you see, Caiaphas wanted Jesus to die so as to be rid of him. But God the Father wanted Jesus to die for our sin. In fact, I want to read you something that was written 700 years before Caiaphas was even born. 700 years. It's in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10. Listen to this. But the Lord was pleased to crush him. That's Jesus. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. Now, this notion of a God, God the Father, who is pleased to send his son to die, that is offensive to our sensibilities, and it is because we really underestimate the irrational love of God for us. We don't get it. God is willing to do this, Isaiah 53.10 says, if he, Jesus, would render himself as a guilt offering, not for his sin, for ours. Now, perhaps words like these were exchanged between father and son even before 
the world was. Maybe the father said, you, son, are the high priest, but are you willing to become the sacrificial offering for all those sinners who will believe? And maybe the son said, yes, father, of course, I will do it for you. I will do it for them. And so we read, the Lord was pleased to crush him. Who did this to him? Well, um, wicked men were the culpable ones, ones like Caiaphas and many like him for sure. But they all operated, you see, in accordance with God's predetermined plan. Before Caiaphas was, God already anticipated it here in Isaiah 53. And so the suffering and death of the son was clearly part of the father's will. Now, folks, death is very final, uh, we think. It is the end of things in the mind of many, but not in this case. And so we read Isaiah 53, 10. He, Jesus, he will see his offspring. He will, the father will prolong his days. Well, now, (laughs) the Lord Jesus died childless. But though he died, we still read, he will see his offspring. And I say, how? Well, I'll tell you how. Resurrection. That's how. But who, who are his offspring? Look around. We is. We who believe are his offspring. And though he, Jesus, died, he will see us because though he died, he lives. It's the resurrection. And the verse says, and the father will prolong his days. So this is the stamp of approval on God the son. The father raised him from death, and the text says, Isaiah 53, 10, God will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. So then, here's my point. Though Caiaphas seems to be calling the shots, (laughs) that's not true. It's God Almighty seeing things from before time and controlling things from behind the scenes. He's the one who is the sovereign, God is in control, and he sees fit to use even godless men like Caiaphas to utter truth he, Caiaphas, doesn't even fully understand. God sees fit to use the evil plans of men to usher in his divine plan of redemption. Let me read this to you uh, to support what I just said. It's Acts chapter 4, verses 27, 28. Listen to this. For truly in this city, Jerusalem, They were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Who killed Jesus? We're all guilty. Caiaphas, Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, the Jews, I gotcha. But nothing happened outside of the will of Almighty God. Caiaphas wanted Jesus out of the way, period. God the Father wanted our sins out of the way, and it had to take place through the death of a substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here's what happens, verse 53. From that day on, they planned together to kill him. Mm -hmm. And therefore, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews. This ends his public ministry amongst the Jews. But went away from there to the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim, 
And there he stayed with the disciples. Where is Ephraim? We don't know. It's probably north, a few miles of Jerusalem. Where in particular? Don't know. He went there, out of the way. Now, verse 55, now the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. This is an irony. Jewish men were required to make pilgrimage to Jerusalem at least three times a year during one of the three pilgrim feasts of which this, Pesach, Passover, is one. And they are going there prior to Passover to purify themselves ceremonially because many things could render them ceremonially impure. They could walk through a seminary, boom, you're defiled. They could eat the wrong food, boom, you're defiled. And so they would go there and they would pray and they would make offerings and they would also be immersed in something called a mikvah, a mikvah, and it would look like that, just like our baptistry. They would go down into the water being fully immersed. They would go down for cleansing and they would come up. Now the difference is they claimed the law of Moses was the cleansing agent. When we see people baptized here, you know what they're claiming? Jesus Christ is the cleansing agent, not the law of Moses. The law defines sin, and the Lord takes it away. Anyway, they're there. It's a very irony. Here are our religious people. They're trying to render themselves pure when on the horizon is the Passover lamb soon to be crucified for their very uncleanness. And so it says in verse 56, they were seeking for Jesus. It's the Passover. They expected for him to be there. They were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? And the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it so that they might seize him. So I want to point out something. Uh, as we draw to a close, the Jewish religious leaders begin by plighting the death of one person, Jesus. But soon things are going to get really out of their hands. And uh, they're going to have to come up with a plan to murder and silence not just one Jesus, but a second one. And so I'll give you a preview of John chapter 12. Look what it says, verse 9 and on. The large crowd of the Jews then learned that he, Jesus, was there. And they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. Things are escalating. They have a plan, a Passover plot, not just to kill one Jesus, now a second Lazarus, and it keeps going. There are going to be soon others who they're going to have to silence as well. We call them the Lord's apostles, because right after the day of Pentecost, they begin, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to go all over the place, hither and yon, boldly proclaiming the resurrected Yeshua, Jesus, as the Savior and Messiah of Israel and of the entire world. And so they're going to have to extinguish their voices as well. And then things really escalate even more. And the Jewish religious leaders now are, have to, are going to have to uh, usher in a plan for all-out persecution of the entire church. And they did. And there was, and it continues down to this very day. And so I would like to point out 
three things that can be gleaned from this text we looked at today. Here's the first. One is the irrational love of God who sent Jesus, his beloved and only begotten son, to die as our substitute on the cross. That's the one thing. Let this passage get that. I have his head nothing to do with it. He's just a vessel. God the Father planned this for his gracious redemptive purposes. The first thing is to see is the irrational. By irrational, I mean it's not tied to any good thing in us. We're not very lovely people. We are law breakers. We're not holy. We're unholy. There's nothing really attractive about us. And that makes the Father's love irrational. It's just there. One thing to conclude is the irrational love of God who sent Jesus, his son, to die as our substitute on the cross. Here's the second thing. It's the irrational rejection of Jesus who was sent to die for the sins of humankind. One thing to conclude is the irrational love of God for sinners. The second thing is to see is the irrational rejection of God by sinners, you wrestle with the program. It doesn't make sense. Why do people reject you? It's irrational. And here's the third thing. It's the irrational attempt to silence the voices of those who have been saved by Jesus. It's not going to work. Three things to see. The irrational love of God for sinners like us. Two, the irrational rejection of God by sinners for whom Jesus died. Three, the irrational attempt by sinners to extinguish the voice of those sinners who have been saved by Jesus Christ. It will not work, for not even the gates of hell can prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. Crazy things are happening in our day. We can't hold our hands on things we value anymore. Strong as our grip is, our values, this and that, institutions seem to be eluding our grasp, but not this. <laughs> no entity on earth, neither the powers or principalities in the air, can extinguish the voices of those who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Now, folks, we have large freedoms here as Christians but I don't know how long they're going to last. I ask myself, and I ask you to think about it. Oh, God, at the time when I'm being challenged to be silent, would you give me sufficient grace in that moment to refuse to be? I must, in light of your irrational love for me, leading to the redemptive offering of your own son, I must not keep quiet. There are commands in the Bible which are hard to obey. I think this would be one that would be impossible to obey. What if God said, I command you to keep quiet? How are you going to do it? You may think you're a timid witness for Jesus Christ, and maybe you are, but you're still a witness for Jesus Christ. What if God ran an experiment and said, I'm going to bless you? by offering to you a full and complete pardon. You who are my adversary are now adopted into my family, and I guarantee you life eternal, for I am the resurrection and the life. And by the way, said God, now keep it to yourself. I don't care how timid you think you are. There's going to be a time and a situation custom made for you. It may be a, not be Goliath who you have to deal with. It may be lions and bears. It's right there laid in your lap. Someone is begging to be saved. <laughs> What if you didn't have the permission to tell them how? You couldn't obey that commandment. Well, you don't have to. 
because God has sent us out into the world, not only to have a heart for him, but also to have a voice for him. And now more than ever, when voices that are crazy are beckoning for people's attention, we ought to raise our voices. We are not to be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God for salvation to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. There is the irrational love of God. There is the irrational rejection of God. And there is the irrational attempt Satan inspired to extinguish (laughs) voices lifted up for God's glory. Don't let it happen. Don't do it. Live, even if you must die, (laughs) for Jesus Christ. Oh, God in heaven, put it within us to be emboldened unashamed by the gospel. We don't have to be abrasive and offensive, but there's something about asking people to submit to your gospel that causes some to be softened, yes, and others to be irrationally hardened. Nonetheless, no matter what comes our way, oh God in heaven, we must be voices with regard to the gospel of grace. For how shall they believe if they do not hear? Let people, even this week, hear about you through us. This is what we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.